This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by LifeWay. With the new CSB Men's Daily Bible, men are seeing the truths of Scripture in direct, effective ways. And with devotionals and insights that speak to every man's struggles and questions, this edition is changing the way men's groups and discipleship partners study together. Pre-order the new CSB Men's Daily Bible today and get the best deal offered with 50% off when you purchase at LifeWay.com and use promo code MDB50. That's LifeWay.com. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by Baker Academic, presenting Colossians and Philemon by G.K. Beale, a must-have commentary for pastors and scholars. Learn more at BakerAcademic.com. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Today's podcast is a panel discussion on reaching youth with the gospel in a secular age. It was recorded at our 2019 National Pre-Conference in Indianapolis. Panelists are Cameron Cole, Jackie Hill Perry, Glenn Scrivener, and Stephen Um. Uh, Lord God, thank you for your goodness and your loving kindness. We thank you, Lord, that you've made us alive together with Christ and that you have raised us to be seated with him in the heavenly realms. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time, uh, that we would see the goodness and the grace of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that we would be edified and sanctified for the sake and glory of the name of Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. Well, uh, today we're going to be talking about discipleship and evangelism to young people. And so when we talk about young people, uh, we're primarily talking about late elementary age all the way into college age. And so we have a a host of people from a variety of contexts. And so we're all going to speak about uh, the task of discipling kids, whether that's our own children, or if you're in children, youth, and family ministry, uh, discipling and evangelizing um, kids in that realm. And so uh, again, my name is Cameron Cole. Uh, For 14 years, I've been the director of children, youth, and family at the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm also the chairman of Rooted, which is a ministry that promotes gospel-centered youth ministry. Uh, We have partnered with the Gospel Coalition for the last seven years uh, to produce content about parent discipleship and youth ministry uh, on the Gospel Coalition blog. And so, um, Jackie, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Jackie. Um, And I write, speak, talk a lot on social media for that reason. I have a lot of millennial friends and people to talk to. I also served as the female mentorship coordinator at a nonprofit in Chicago for some time that sought to mentor uh, at-risk teens. I'm Glenn Scrivener. I'm an evangelist working in the UK. I'm I'm from Australia originally, and I spend a lot of my time uh, going around university campuses uh, in the UK and uh, also producing media that is uh, particularly consumed by older teens. 
My name is Stephen Um. I'm the senior pastor of City Life Presbyterian Church in Center City, Boston. And I guess the reason why I'm on this panel is I uh, get to speak to a lot of university students. Great. So it's, it's not an um, obscure fact that uh, the church has had a, a tough time, the discipleship of young people over the past generation, a variety of studies, uh, but somewhere in the range of 70% of kids who grow up in the church and not return to church after high school. Uh, and so the quest, first question we have is where um, have we seen problems with and failures in the way that parents and churches have presented the gospel to young people? Stephen, do you want to start us off with that? <laughs> um, I, think, I think we need to be more concerned about um, addressing the issues of the heart than we are about behavior modification. Not that behavior modification is unimportant, but we need to uh, model uh, to our children in the church and also in the home that the way we think about every dimension of life in ministry is centered around the gospel. So that is the way we look at life and the way we look at our ministry and the way we look at our families is uh, rooted in what the gospel is. So the way that we parent and the way that we communicate, um, we have to show our children that the gospel is distinctly different uh, than uh, just behavior modification or some uh, religious uh, expression, but it is a real-life relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and I think because that hasn't been modeled as well uh, in our churches and in our homes, a lot of our, our children get disillusioned uh, whether by hypocrisy or inconsistency, um, and they don't see how their parents are really relying upon the sufficiency of Scripture uh, for all things. And so they see it more as we go to church on Sundays, um, but they necessarily do not see how uh, it shapes the way they do everything in life. I think off the back of that, a gospel-centered youth ministry is so vital. I remember in my teenage years, I grew up in a church-going family, and uh, I remember giving my life to Jesus about a thousand times in my teenage years. I, I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think from about age 14, uh, it was sort of the first time at a big sort of conference like this, and it was a very melodramatic giving of my life up to Jesus, and that didn't seem to work, because uh, I went home to the mirror, and I didn't see a shining light behind my eyes, or a halo above my head, or a funny feeling in my stomach, and so I prayed again, and again, and again, and uh, I think the passage in my teenage years that haunted me was the Garden of Gethsemane, because I had the bracelet that said, what would Jesus do? And apparently Jesus would go into a wooded place and bury his face in the mud and give his life to God in an incredible act of self-surrender and service. And I thought, well, that's what I need to do. And I would volunteer to, to walk the dog into a forest and bury my face into the mud and give my life to God and give my life to God. And I'd run home and I'd try to see if there was a difference and there was no difference. So I'd pray again and again and my youth leaders were continually telling me to give my life to God and give my life to God. And I think by about the 950th time, um, you know, how do you think I was feeling about God? You know, yeah. just taking my life from me. Uh, and it was really only aged about 20, I, I got down with a, a friend reading through Luke's gospel, and we got to the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, I said, I can't handle reading this passage, because I can't do it like Jesus. And my friend said, you know, Glenn, do you think you're Jesus? I said, well, not, not 100%, but, you know, <laughs> getting there. And he said, Glenn, in that passage, you are not Jesus, you are Peter. And what's Peter doing in the passage? You know, failing, rubbish, stupid, foolish Peter. 
and Jesus prays for him. And I thought, ah. And here's what was lacking for you know, so many years of youth ministry. Um, when I was just trying to foster and forge a vertical relationship with God and, and give it up to God and give it up to God and give it up to God. And suddenly he told me Christ had done it for me and the, the release and the service. And I just wonder if in youth work, one of the reasons why we don't reach out with the gospel is because we're constantly trying to forge and foster that vertical relationship with God that's already a free gift in Jesus. And if only we would know that and receive that, maybe we would flow out to the nations. My, my story is pretty similar to yours, Glenn, in the way that uh, the gospel got you into heaven. And then after that, Christianity was just another form of performance. It was about trying really, really hard for God. That's what it meant to be a Christian. And so, quite honestly, you know, I grew up in a suburban, I minister today, and I grew up in a suburban setting where people do things like bribe college admissions officers to let their children into college. Um, that's the holy grail. And... Um, I, uh, I really was just a performance addict, and my religious experience in the church really just kind of reinforced that. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I really came to a point where when I was 22 years old, I basically had a nervous breakdown. And the thing that healed me and set me free, um, and this was as a person who grew up going to church every single Sunday of my life, even in college, even in graduate school, was my pastor saying to me, the gospel is rest. The gospel means that Jesus carries the burden of your life. And the gospel means that you'll never have to impress anyone again. Hmm. And, uh, and so to hear that the gospel actually had relevance to me as a Christian uh, was when I really came alive in Christ. And so um, I think that, uh, to your point, Stephen, um, there can be this, uh, we can kind of in some ways just contradict and undermine that original presentation of the gospel uh, if we don't let that message of grace saturate the whole life the whole Christian life, and the whole process of discipleship. Um, how about you, Jackie? Yeah, I think it, it seems to me that one of the uh, faults of how the gospel has been presented is that I think it's been assumed that the gospel is only supposed to affect us and not affect our neighbors, our neighborhoods, our homes. And so I think it's disorienting even in our culture now where it seems as if the gospel has only changed how you love the other people in your church, but not the others that are outside the church, not the immigrant, not the oppressed, not the prisoner. And so I think that makes the gospel very unattractive when it seems that how did God make you holy, but you don't love well. Um, And so I I see that the most, is that they don't want our God because our God doesn't seem to reach outside of the four walls of the church. Great. And if I could just add to that, Cameron, I think think the doctrine of the union with Christ is is so important in in helping us to uh, understand the the relationship between justification and progressive sanctification. Um, It is the, the work of Christ that provides rescuing grace uh, to overcome the, uh, the, uh, the, the penalty of sin. But it is the life of Christ that provides the rescue and grace to overcome the power of sin. And I think that oftentimes we simply think about the justifying work of Jesus, and it's something that has happened, but there isn't this ongoing work uh, of the Spirit as we think about what it means to be in union with Christ to overcome uh, all of the struggles that we have uh, on an ongoing basis in overcoming the power of sin. He who is in uh, uh, us is, is greater than he who is in the world. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great point that takes us to the next question. Um, in your particular context, what benefits or aspects of the gospel do you find really resonate with the kids that you minister to? 
these kids are depressed. Um, they are. They have a lot of anxiety. Uh, I think I saw an article today that after, I think, 1997, the anxiety and depression rates went up. I don't know if that's because of YouTube or what, but um, I, I think uh, I had a conversation with a student. I was at a college in, uh, no, a high school in Montreal, uh, North Carolina, two weeks ago, and she said, what is it about Jesus that I need to believe the most when life is hard? And I was like, one, that's a great question to ask. And I was like, I think we can be encouraged by the fact that we have a God who stepped into suffering. You know, that he was not in heaven seeing the suffering of the people because of sin and death and how that's affected us and told us to, you know, just get through it, just trudge through life, you know, catch your anxieties on me, don't trip. But he condescended and get, he became a man of sorrows. And so we can look at him and know that he gets it. We can look at him and know that he was God yet sorrowful often, but we can look at him and know that even in his sorrow, he had joy. And so I think that uh, that's one thing that I think our students need to see is that their God, our Jesus, is one that gets their pain. I think Christ-centered theology and a, a knowledge of God that is focused in Christ is just so vital. I do a lot of evangelism with, with adults as well as youth, uh, and my rule of thumb is always if, if someone is over 55 and they tell me that they're a Christian, I don't believe them, at least mm. not right away, mm. um, because there's such a thing as nominal Christianity. You know, I'm not rude about it. I don't mm. poke them in the chest and say, you know, <laughs> s- you know sing a few hymns or something, but <laughs> I, it has been easier for an older generation to look at the, the, the labels that are out there and pick the Christian label and put it on and go out into the world. And we know there's such a thing as nominal Christianity, but I, I speak to a lot of under 25s, and when they tell me that they're an atheist, I don't believe them, and for the very same reason, um, because it's very, very easy today to go to a, a, a shelf full of labels and to find the atheist label and to put it on and go out there into the world. And you haven't done more than five minutes of philosophical thinking about you know, <sighs> materialism, but you're an atheist. You know, are, are you really? Well, it's, it's just an identity that helps you to navigate the world a little less frictionless, a little more frictionlessly. So there is such a thing as nominal atheism. And so my, my question to over 55s is, you know, which God do you believe in? My question to under 25s is, which God don't you believe in? Yeah. Um, and usually they end up describing some distant individual high on power, low on personality, kind of a Thor figure with a thunderbolt ready to hurl. And I just say, well, that sounds like Thor. I, uh, <laughs> I don't believe in Thor. Um, can I tell you about Jesus? Yeah. And I'm, I'm always using the phrase, the, the Jesus God. I picked it up from an Iranian uh, woman who'd sort of escaped from Iran when she became a Christian. She'd become a Christian because of, uh, her uncle had given her a copy of the gospel. She read through the gospel. She got halfway through Luke's gospel. And she said, I realize that God cannot be the God of the Ayatollahs. He must be the Jesus God. And I love that phrase. I've been using that phrase ever since that moment. So I, I do think the, the big doctrine that I'm just always preaching when I'm speaking to youth in particular is let's be talking about the Jesus God. When, when, I, when I say God, I'm picturing, most particularly, I'm picturing uh, a man on the cross with his arms wide open to the world bleeding for his enemies. I don't know what you're thinking of when you think of God. But I think if we are to really shape our thoughts in Christ and in Christ crucified, then that's the sort of thing that we should say. And it's the sort of thing that's really compelling, especially for youth. When we uh, think about uh, the baseline cultural narrative uh, among young people, not only millennials, but this new generation called iGens, what we realize is that they have a great concern for 
justice, right? speaking into uh, injustices and uh, having a concern for those who are marginalized and vulnerable. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. So scholars have said that it is important for us to find a point of agreement or what we would call an element of contact uh, with our baseline cultural narrative. That's exactly what Paul did when he spoke to a, a, uh, a non-Jewish or non-Christian audience, whether in Lystra in um, Acts 14 or Acts 17 in Athens. That's exactly what he did. He found a point of reference, uh, a reference of identification. And so I would say the cultural, uh, baseline cultural narrative uh, for many of them would be, uh, would be justice. And, and I think the aspect of the gospel that is able to uh, make contact with that would be the, the incarnation, right? When we think about the three non-negotiable essential elements of the gospel, uh, it would be incarnation, atonement, and resurrection. And so I really press into that, uh, the incarnational ministry of Jesus and how he was concerned about reaching the quartet of the marginalized and the vulnerable and how he brought healing and restoration for those people who were in need. Yeah, I've found uh, in my context, again, kids, I've had probably over a thousand kids go through my youth ministry, and I still have not had a child not go to college right out of high school. Still batting 100% on that. So that gives you a sense of what my children are like. Um, and so one thing that I emphasize quite a bit with them is the active obedience of Jesus. It's not just that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It's that Jesus lived a perfect life for you. Like that was a, par- a necessary part of your salvation. And so something I'll say to kids uh, on a Sunday night before we dismiss is remember that Jesus has already lived this week for you perfectly. He's already lived this week on your behalf perfectly. Um, And, you know, we certainly are not, you know, saying to kids, you don't have to obey the Lord, you know, and you don't, um, you know, you don't have to to live a life of sacrifice for him. Um, But we find that for our kids to really come to love and appreciate Jesus to hear that he has already lived a life that they feel like they're expected to live every day and that, that's reinforced via media and social media and their parents and their schools. Um, it's a very, very freeing and compelling thing for them to hear that not only did Jesus die for their faults, but that Jesus also lived this perfect life when so many of them um, are striving uh, to, to, to measure up to perfection in every way. So, um, you know, as we talk about trying to lead kids to Christ, um, you know, we often see that there are idols that they cling to that they don't want to let go of in order to surrender their self to the Lordship of Jesus. And so what are some of the most common uh, idols that you're seeing uh, in your context um, that kids are really clinging to uh, that are a challenge to them to let go of to come and follow Jesus as their Lord? I think it's difficult for everyone in every age, um, but the dangers of narcissism are just huge, especially in a social media age and especially for younger people. Um, and of course, the, the thing about the narcissist myth is that narcissus um, wasn't just in love with himself, he was in love with the image of himself, which I think is something very interesting in an Instagram age, um, that we fall in love, not even with ourselves, but we fall in love with the curated image of ourselves that we project out into the world. Um, and, and yet it's so empty, it's so hollow. Um, so you've got this really interesting um, disjunction between an investment into an image and at the same time the prizing of authenticity. You know, everyone wants to follow on YouTube the most authentic vlogger. 
um, who says, hey guys, and, you know, and if, you can, if you can fake authenticity, you've got it made, I tell you. Um, but that's, that's this age. This age is so hungry for authenticity, and maybe it's because we're all front, we are all show, we're all taking the selfie 17 times and putting the filter on it and getting it out there. So I, I think falling in love with our own image um, would be top of, top of the list for me. Right? It's all the same. Uh, what, what have you dealt with? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think one thing that I, I, I see, I, I guess two things. One would be just kind of this ad- addiction to doubt. Um, oh. Like the wrestling for the sake of wrestling, but never really wanting to come to a conclusion on something that you have to now submit to. And so it's like, uh, having all these questions of the text, which you should have, having all these questions of Jesus, which you should have, but when you get, uh, you know, some type of resolve or some type of answer, now you have a question of the answer, where it's like, you don't even want the answer, you just are addicted to questioning it. And so I think, I see that a lot. I think that's an idol, where it's like, you, you really don't really want to know. Yeah, and on that I don't note, know what that is. Yeah, and on that note, I, I think I find myself for a lot of kids where um, kind of caught in the same mm-hmm. position. It's really a matter of not wanting to give up autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel that the world celebrates uh, human autonomy and self-rule as a virtue. Mm-hmm. You know, to do what you want to do um, is really the most virtuous thing I, I've I um, found it just so puzzling that when Bruce Jenner transitioned, uh, that he was given the Arthur Ashe Award for Courage by ESPN uh, when he had left his wife. He had left his wife and left his family and done something that, you know, if let's say that he had run off with another woman, that would be criticized and condemned. But because there was uh, some sense that he was being true to himself, uh, and that he was really embracing human autonomy for whatever reason it was celebrated as a virtue. And so I think for a lot of our kids, um, something I'll say uh, in a bolder moments is, you know, what are you going to have to give up if this Jesus stuff is true? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think really what you're going to have to give up is doing whatever you want. You know, if, this, if Jesus really rose from the dead and the Christian story is true and the Bible is God's word, that means you, you can't, you can't go around partying and smoking weed and sleeping around. Like, that, that, that's just not part of it. You have to submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus. And so I, I think that, you know, what really is the core of sin, wanting to be our own lord, um, I think that autonomy, because it's so celebrated and embraced by the culture, may be the biggest idol um, that I encounter in trying to lead kids to Christ. For sure. Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> what I have to share is essentially everything that, that you've shared already. And, and I think a, a major idol for this younger generation would be uh, comfort uh, because uh, they, they are so individualistic, right? Every generation has been individualistic, but uh, this generation... Uh, let, let me commend two books to you. For those of you who are parents and if you have children who are born between 1995 and 2007. They're, they're not millennials, they're iGens, and they're the ones who are entering into to the university. The reason why there have been all sorts of disinvitations and so on and so forth is because this younger generation uh, is, is so consumed with comfort. So those two books, uh, one would be Jonathan Haidt's Coddling of the American Mind, and the other one would be uh, Gene Twenge, uh, iGens. 
And what they highlight is that there is an over uh, a safetyism uh, that, pe that these young people want. Uh, this generation wants over safetyism. So they, they have medicalized everything. They refer to harm. Even if it's not real harm, they will, they will respond to perceived harm and, and they'll say, I don't feel safe in this setting. And, and, and so they don't want to be challenged with anything that will make them feel uncomfortable. Um, so they believe that somebody who disagrees with them is a potential threat to them. We used to call that intellectual inquiry. Um, and having the willingness to be able to respect all sorts of uh, uh, diverse views. And, and so, so this generation really wants to hold on to comfort. Um, I, I heard um, uh, Keller say something like this. He said, there's a liberal individualism and a conservative individualism. And, and that is for uh, a liberal individualism is that they uh, have essentially co-opted some Christian ideas such as justice and caring for the poor, uh, but, uh, but they have taken it and extrapolated to its extreme um, end. And, and therefore, they'll say, hey, you know, it's good to take care of those people who are vulnerable, but don't tell me how to, uh, uh, to tell me what to do with my body. And, um, and that's essentially uh, where we've come to, where this generation is saying, hey, it's great for me to be a part of that, but if you're going to disagree with me, especially as it relates to my body or as it relates to my money for those who are conservative individualists, I don't want to be challenged that way. I want to remain in my comfort. I want to remain in this uh, uh, worldview, and, and I want everyone else to assimilate to, to what I believe. So that's great. that could be one. I'm getting a lot out of this panel. I don't know if you guys are. <laughs> um, so uh, one thing that, that's uh, becoming a, you know, an increasing challenge to pretty much everyone in ministry is sharing the gospel in a secular age. Uh, 50 years ago, 6% of college students when they enrolled identified as having no religious affiliation. In 2015, 30% of students identified as having no religious affiliation. So what advice would you give uh, to people in evangelism in a secular and post-Christian age. It's interesting when you press into those figures about the nuns, not the NUNs, but the N-O-N-E-S's, that um, like there was a Pew Research poll done in 2017 here in the States, and uh, people asked, you know, do you believe in God? And I think 80% said did, but of the 20%, that said they did not, um, you, they then pressed in and said, you know, do you believe in some kind of higher power? And at least half of those said, oh yeah, absolutely, but not God. And then when they pressed into those who said they did not pray, uh, a majority of people who said they did not pray, when they were asked, do you ever talk to God? They said, oh yeah, I talk to God, I just don't pray. You think, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you thought prayer was, maybe you stop doing that and just talk to God, that would be, that would be quite, a, quite a good thing, right? Um, so people don't know what they think. And when they present as no religion, I'm an atheist. When people present as an atheist, quite often I'll just ask, well, when's the last time you prayed? And they say, oh, actually I'm praying for my mom. She's going into hospital. And you know, ah, gotcha, right? But there's a nominal atheism. And I, and I do think we, we are a little bit too cowed by statistics and figures. Um, one, of the, one of the ways that outreach happens in the UK uh, on campuses is that the, the students, the Christian students want to put on talks and then they invite evangelists like me to come and speak and they will, they will basically troll the student population with the most inflammatory talk topics imaginable, like why does God hate these people? 
uh, Glenn Scrivener will explain. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I arrive, and, and the, the, there's massive posters, and, and they, would have got, they, would, they would have come for the free pizza. And, and, and yet, right, right. just give them the free pizza. I just want to talk about Jesus. But there was one time, it was, why does God hate women so very much, or something like that. Mm. And, and uh, the wise thing they did was they got a woman to come and speak to that topic, and she did a brilliant job, but I was in the audience watching. Mm. And uh, there was a Q&A session afterwards, and one guy from the Atheist and Secular Humanist Association picked up the microphone afterwards, and he just dominated the Q&A mm. and just asked all the most aggressive, angry questions mm. about homophobia and sexuality and gender and what about hell and what about holy war in the Old Testament. And she did a brilliant job answering the questions, but everyone's shoulders were up around their ears, and mm. some poor student had to get up afterwards and sort of say, well, time for lectures, everyone, <laughs> hope you come back tomorrow. Mm. And... Uh, everyone's shoulders were still up here. And I just turned to the guy who was next to me and I said, what did you make of that? And he said, oh, I wasn't listening to that guy with the microphone, but my granddad died last week and I've just been wondering what life's about. Do you have any thoughts? And, and I did, I had, I had a number of thoughts. And so we, we had a conversation for an hour. I looked around and all these students were getting into conversations with all these apparently angry atheists. Mm. And, I mean, the guy I spoke to came back that night and became a Christian that night, and, you know, he's still walking on with the Lord. And, and my, my motto ever since then is that the guy with the microphone does not speak for the room. Mm. And it's an allegory, too, because, you know, the mainstream media does not speak for the nation, mm. and the statistics are not the person who is in front of you. So however cowed we might be by the rise of the nuns or whatever... Um, just talk to your neighbor. They've just lost their granddad and they're wondering what life is about. You know? don't, don't be too worried about the cultural trends. Jesus said, love your neighbor. So turn to your neighbor and you'll find that they have spiritual needs. Yeah, Charles Taylor in his book, uh, Dilemmas and Connections, um, he's a world-renowned uh, Canadian philosopher and he's written a lot on secularism. And, and he says that that when you think about secularism, it's, it's simply saying that, that uh, any comprehensive view of religion has no space in public discourse. That doesn't mean that our culture has not co-opted or borrowed or adopted Christian ideas. Um, and so late modernity has adopted all sorts of Christian ideas. So we have, to, we have to be keen on observing what those, place, what those ideas are to be able to find a point of reference. And so it's not very difficult to speak with a professing atheists or people who are a-religious because of the thoughts that they have, even though they don't realize it, many of those thoughts are connected to a Christian idea that has been adopted and co-opted. And so... So this is why I think that progressive Christianity is very, very dangerous. They don't know the distinction between uh, biblical orthodox Christianity and a co-opted version uh, that seems to assimilate and accommodate to what the baseline cultural narrative is. And so, so I think that uh, the situation that we're in is, is not hopeless by any means. People say, oh, no, we, you know, we should perhaps consider the Benedict option and isolate ourselves and so on and so forth. I, I really think that God uses opportunities and moments like this for us to be able to speak the gospel into uh, those ideas which have already been borrowed uh, uh, from Christian ideas in the past. So I, I think that those are things that we can consider. Your question was about encouragement. This was uh, a way to I'm sleepy. I have a 10-month-old. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> 
Um, you're cool. You can get away with it. I appreciate that. No, uh, you're so kind. So, um, yeah, we're talking about, you know, navigating the waters of sharing the gospel in a secular age. Beautiful. So I think, um, <laughs> I, I think primarily for me, it is encouraging. Um, I, I think somebody could be discouraged by the statistics, but if anything, it means that people are being more honest. Um, and so I think because people are very clear on what they believe and what they don't believe, we have more to work with um, instead of, so, so for me, it, it's easier for me to do ministry in places like Boston or Portland or New York, these places that people would call secular, than it is for me to do ministry in Texas and Memphis and Tennessee, because I have to now get through all of this like religious jargon that they've never even submitted to in their entire life. And so for me, I'm encouraged that like, oh, you in sin and you know it, good. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can do something with that. Um, but also, I think it. I think I'm also. I think one encouragement would also be is that um, this is secularism and all of that is not primary or intellectual or academic issue. Um, should we educate ourselves? Should we know how to defend the faith? Should we know how to contend for the faith? Sure. But the things that people are grabbing a hold of and believing are coming out of a passion. And so for me, it's sitting with somebody and saying, "Why do you want this to not be true?" What, what is it about God that you don't want him to be God? What is it about salvation that you don't want it to be only one way? What is it about sexual, sexual ethics that you think is... So getting to the root of the unbelief, um, I think, gets beyond the academic level and more a passion, heart level that I think uh, allows us to speak into some deep-seated things that Christians probably haven't talked to them about. Right. And I think, you know, secularism just is not really working very well for people. People are anxious. People are depressed. People have no sense of meaning or purpose in their life. And so, you know, we can absolutely dominate those topics, right? right. We, I mean, in terms of redemption and joy Mm -hmm. and uh, companionship Mm -hmm. of the Holy Spirit and union with Christ, like we, um, we have the market. Jesus has completely dominated the market on those things. And so I think one, one thing we can get very caught up in in sharing the gospel is purely operate at the intellectual level, like get into intellectual matches. And of course, the intellectual side is important. And at the same side, at the same time, I feel like apologetics that really resonate with people at the heart level and that really reveal to people how hopeful and, uh, and how life-giving and joyful it is to follow Jesus. Uh, I think if we operate at the heart level in our apologetics and evangelism, uh, I think that, that we really offer people that they are not going to find uh, in, you know, in this uh, you know, humanist worldview that most are living under. Yeah, and to that end, um, Cameron, um, every individual, whatever their ideological worldview might be, they struggle with problem emotions, right, as, as you've shared already. Everyone struggles with fear, insecurity, anxiety, depression, despair, boredom, anger. We all wrestle with this. And, and if you get to the, the underneath, the root issue of all of these problem emotions, you're going to find uh, deep-seated idols like approval and power and influence and control and, and, um, and comfort. And, and again, there's no other system or reality that speaks so well into those issues and providing a remedy and resolution uh, for problem emotions and the deep-seated idols than, than the gospel. So um, you're right. It's not just an intellectual issue. Sometimes that, that it's just a smokescreen because people 
don't know how to deal with uh, some deeper emotional stuff. Amen. Well, um, in, in a similar vein, I think one of the, the biggest conversation pieces that comes up when talking to people uh, this day and age about the gospel and about Christianity is issues of gender and sexuality. And so do you have any advice uh, to offer people and how we uh, navigate those ways in a manner that's biblically faithful and honest and, and that's also compassionate and redemptive? I mean, has anyone, like, maybe written a book on the topic? Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was trying to be humble. Um, <laughs> anybody win the TGC book award on this topic? Maybe? Uh, I was trying to be humble. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's imperative that the conversation does not center around sexuality, but it centers around God who created sex, God mm-hmm. who created people. Uh, growing up in church, being someone who was same-sex attracted, um, I saw only, uh, the, it seemed that the only reason that I would, was to turn from it would be because I should do right. I shouldn't go to hell. I shouldn't do wrong. But I always, in coming to Christ, I wondered if anybody would have just told me about the beauty of God, if I would have repented a m- much quicker. Um, they never casted a vision for this is the reason for your turning. This is the person that you are turning to, and this is the person who will give you hope, and this is the person that will give you power to flee your temptation even when you walk with them. And so I think that's really what our culture needs is to see and understand God. And I think in understanding God, then everything else makes sense. So if it's why should I uh, not give in to my same-sex desires? Why should I obey Jesus? Because he's good. And he created your body for himself. And the body was not meant for sexual immorality, but for somebody. Who is that somebody? For the Lord. And so he's not telling you to turn from something that you suppose is good to turn to something that is bad. If God created sex, then surely he has to be better than it. And so I think casting vision for, I sound like uh, John Piper, but casting vision. Uh, But really, like, showing that God is so good and so big that even if it hurts, even if there is some grief from you detaching from the flesh and living the way that you used to live, even in all of that, God is being really good to you to tell you to stop. And so I think that's what we need is just sexuality underneath the goodness and glory of God. Mm, That's really good. Thank you. Uh, you, should, you should think about writing on that. I should. I, I would say, I think one thing um, that's important, and when I, I, this is a major shift in the way that I have to do sex education like twice a year for 14 years, that's 28 times, um, I can no longer blush. Uh, but anyhow, uh, I no longer talk about sex as a category in and of itself. I talk about sex as a subcategory or one component and form of intimacy that God gives us. Uh, Because you have to remember um, that, you know, what people are really longing for is sex, is connection and intimacy. Mm -hmm. And and the world upholds sex as an idol. And and really, honestly, the world kind of uh, conceives of sex as a way of you will not be fulfilled, you will not flourish, and you will not feel any sense of connection and fellowship uh, unless you are sexually active. Uh, and so, um, you know, for when we talk about, uh, I, I just try to communicate uh, to people that sex is just one form of intimacy that God has given us. 
to be enjoyed in marriage. And there are uh, all kinds of other forms of intimacy, with the greatest of those being found in intimate fellowship with Jesus. Uh, and so that, that, that's, that's part of how I, I try to kind of frame the conversation, get away from letting sex be a category in and of itself, but talk about sexuality in a broader category of intimacy and fellowship. Mm, that's good. Mm. Lots of things to say on the topic, but one thing to encourage evangelists and youth workers with is that it might not be as big an issue with the person you're talking to as you think it might be. So in the UK, they did a massive survey. Um, it was sponsored by the Church of England and the Evangelical Alliance and Hope, which is a very large uh, kind of uh, fellowship of churches. Uh, asked a lot of non-Christians, um, would you associate any of these adjectives with Christianity? And one of the adjectives was homophobia. And uh, 7% said they would. 7% would associate Christianity and homophobia in a very unchurched, very secular nation. Um, and that always shocks Christians. Christians are always like, ah, they haven't asked my friends. If they asked my friends, it would be 97%. And you're like, well, I, th I think they did the survey. I think they went through due diligence. Let's, let's maybe listen to that. And let's not let that issue disqualify you mm -hmm. from turning to your neighbor, from just turning to the youth who are in your care and actually talking to them about Jesus. Because I, I think there can be this thought in the back of our heads, um, everybody thinks we're bigots. We can't open our mouths about Jesus. And we actually, we censor ourselves when, if statistics are to be, be believed, there's 93% of people who aren't even thinking about that. So, you know, that's just an encouragement to, to keep sharing and not let the thought that you might be considered a bigot stop you. Yeah, when, uh, I'm going to turn the page here. We've talked so much about evangelism to kids in the world, and we haven't talked about a whole lot about evangelism within the home. And so, um, you know, as a, as a kind of, let's, let's spend the, the, the remaining five minutes of our time there. Um, what advice would you give parents um, about sharing the gospel with and discipling their own kids? I don't think I'm qualified for that. Me neither. <laughs> We're all looking ahead, to you, Stephen. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, I have uh, three, uh, three daughters. Two of them are millennials and one is an iGen. Um, and so I, I say that from preschool to about fifth grade, they respect you and they honor you as they should. And, uh, and they'll listen to you. So you, you have an opportunity to be able to always have a point of reference. They, they're going to church, they're going to Sunday school, they have, they have uh, an awareness of who God is and Jesus. And so you simply talk to them about these sorts of things. But as they get into middle school, junior high and high school, uh, as they start uh, trying to think a little more independently and as they're being influenced by what the culture is saying, you can't just simply uh, uh, speak the truth. You need to continue doing that, but you also need to be able to be aware of their social context. And if that's not part of the discipleship, if that's not part of what you do as a parent, you say, oh, that's, that's the responsibility of the church. Um, what's going to happen is they're going to go to college and then you're going to be utterly surprised that they have abandoned their faith or they have assimilated into, into uh, mainstream culture, and, and you're going to wonder why uh, that they're not continuing to grow in their faith. So I think it's the responsibility of the parent uh, to be well-equipped, to be, um, be able to understand the social context. Again, this iGen generation, remember, iPhone 2007, Facebook 2006, Twitter 2006, uh, Instagram, 2010, 
uh, Snapchat 2011. This is the first generation uh, that has grown up with social media. So they don't know of any other reality. So if you're not aware that iGens, the ones who are in high school who are freshmen or, or sophomores in college, don't want to use Facebook, if you don't know why they don't want to do that, why millennials do that, and why they just want Snapchat, then you need to, to read some books and you need to, to uh, prepare and equip yourself Gene Twenge's book is really helpful in this regard, but, but I think that that has to be part of the discipleship. So, I, I have a little advice. Yeah, spare a smidge. Um, I have a four-year-old and a 10-month-old, so 10-month-old doesn't know anything, so I can't speak to that. But the four-year-old, our primary act of fellowship is over Daniel Tiger. So I'll say what I am trying to do and what I hope to do. What I'm, what I'm trying to do, me and my husband have been uh, kind of talking to her about things over dinner, um, about sin, about God. Um, one, I, I think some people, it seems as if like, so I'm trying to, I wasn't grown, raised in a Christian home. And so a lot of the ways I'm trying to model, I guess, parenting, discipleship is through the ways that I was discipled but also learning from all of my friends that grew up in Christian homes and trying not to do what they told me their parents did. <laughs> so um, one thing is it, it seems they, I guess, didn't start early enough in facilitating conversation that didn't always feel preachy. Oh, and yeah. so like having conversation and her having the freedom to push back and the freedom to wrestle because when she's 15, 16, 17, 18, I want her to, I, I don't want her to have to depend on me to come to conclusions about what the scriptures are saying. Um, that doesn't mean that she shouldn't come to me and all of that, but I still, Christianity is a hard thing. That There's some stuff that you, when you're in Le- Leviticus and you don't know what the heck this is, you got to somehow figure that out yourself. Um, but also I think uh, just talking to her on a level that she could understand, but also not doubting that she can't understand. So what I mean by that is uh, she's four, and she told me, we were talking about God. She said, God isn't real. I was like, why isn't he real? And she was like, because I can't see him. It's like, that makes sense. I said, but can you see grandma? She said, no. I said, why not? Because she's not here, but is she real? Well, So, but I'm using terms and language that she gets, but I'm not, I'm not treating my child like she's stupid and only talking to her. Do you know who God is? I'm not, I'm not doing that to my baby because I understand that God has given her a brain. She is an image bearer and he has made her a communicator and somebody that can get it. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I don't know. I think the two things I would say on, on, uh, uh, the appearance in this angle is I, 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 as a paid Christian, um, who, you know, as children, youth, and family, I f- a lot of times feel this pressure, like I've got to save my kids. Mm. You know, like it's, it's incumbent upon my performance to model a godly life and to share the gospel with as much clarity as possible such that I will save my kids. And I, it's, I have to remember over and over again that like God loves my child more than I do. And God is infinitely more effective uh, to rescue my child from sin uh, than I am. And so to actually trust God uh, to be a better parent than me. I'd say also too, probably the most powerful form of evangelism you can have as a parent is to frequently confess your sin and apologize to your child. Especially when you uh, have lost your temple with your child or you've been unfair, you've been unsensitive, to get down on your knees and to say, I need to apologize to you. I, I sinned against you. And you know, daddy is a sinner and dad needs the grace of Jesus Christ every single day. Uh, because, especially for someone like me who works in ministry, there's such a risk 
of coming off as a huge hypocrite to your child if you try to act like you're perfect and you don't uh, humble yourself and show that you're as depraved as they'll ever be and that you're as dependent upon the grace of Jesus as they'll ever be. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.